Welcome to Reframe Your Life, a podcast for women who are on a spiritual journey and want to reclaim a vibrant and authentic faith. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Sandy Reynolds. Welcome to episode 85. This interview was recorded about a month ago, and in the last week, I've written several blog posts on the topic of abuse. It seems like synchronicity on this episode. My guest today is Reverend Carol Howard Merritt. She's a minister whose writing, speaking, and teaching is anchored in theological wisdom and sociological insight. After being raised as a conservative Baptist and attending a fundamentalist Bible college, Carol studied at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Texas and became a Presbyterian minister. She's known for serving growing Presbyterian churches in America, especially those with a deep commitment to serving the poor and disenfranchised. She is the award-winning author of four books, including Healing Spiritual Wounds, Reconnecting with a Loving God After Experiencing a Hurtful Church. She's a frequent contributor to magazines, websites, and journals, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this interview. Welcome to Reframe Your Life, Carol. I'm really looking forward to this interview and exploring this important topic of healing spiritual wounds with you today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I think we should just get right into your backstory. It's very interesting to me to explore my guest's upbringing and their faith story as a child and how that's impacted the direction they went in spiritually in their life. So what what was your background like growing up? What what kind of faith or religious tradition were you brought up in? And, and how has that shaped your thinking and your life now? Well, I grew up in Florida and I was um, in the United States and and I was in a very conservative Baptist family. And, um, and, you know, there was some violence in our home, so I've had to struggle with that and, and uh, work through that. And a lot of my book is sort of focused on, on um, you know, trying to figure out my, my relationship with my parents and my religion and, and everything through that. But, you know, I, uh, I always felt a connection with God, even with um, struggles that I had with my religion and with my family. Um, And so I decided to go into the ministry. And um, when you're a conservative Southern Baptist, Mm -hmm. it looks different for women. Um, Women aren't uh, allowed to be pastors or it was even looked down on me to, to be a Sunday school teacher or something like that. But you can go overseas and do whatever you want. <laughs> so, yes. so I went to a fundamentalist Bible college and, um, and decided to become a missionary. And so I was there and, you know, I, I didn't, really go to private school or I wasn't homeschooled and a lot of the people in the college were either homeschooled or, or, you know, went to a a Christian school. And so it was really a huge culture shock for me to all of a sudden go from this public school in Florida to this very, uh, uh, cloistered environment with very different rules about women. So that was, that was pretty earth shattering for me. So, yeah, yeah. So eventually I became a Presbyterian minister, but it was a lot of struggle and, and frustration and, and, uh, internal battles to get there. I I relate to that part of your story because I, I, um, went to, Bible college in my 20s and mm-hmm. I it was the same thing the only option was to be a missionary but I did one year of a bachelor of theology and then realized I 
just was not in the right place. So I, I can really sympathize and empathize with that part of your story. And so just, you know, churches are a little bit different in Canada than they are in the U.S. And, you know, I have people listening from all over the world. So I just wonder what the difference is or if you could explain sort of the difference between Presbyterian and Baptist, that like what are some of the fundamental differences in those two um, beliefs or denominations? Right. Uh, well, I could get all into the polity, which is really church wonkish, you know, <laughs> in the sense that uh, Presbyterians are more connected to each other and, and Baptists tend to make their own decisions, church by church. But the main difference to me was that um, Presbyterians were were really extraordinary in welcoming women and um, and the gifts of women. And we were still late, of course. You know, we're talking you know 100 to 50 years ago where we were welcoming the gifts of women and allowing them to become part of leadership. But when you look at the, uh, the spectrum of the church, you know, being in existence for 2,000 years, 50 years ago is pretty late. But <laughs> with all of that, um, we, were, we were some of the first ones. So, so a little more progressive, very progressive when it comes to women's rights and, and um, when it comes to, uh, you know, birth control and, and reproductive health and all of those things. Um, we've been pretty progressive. That's great. Yeah, I, I just wondered about that because I think that those denominations mean something else to me. So when you shifted from um, your initial background into the Presbyterian Church, was there like a moment for you or even just spiritually, was there a moment where you just realize that I call them like life reframing moments, but a spiritual moment where you were like, I just can't follow this way anymore. Was there like a breaking point or was it like a step series of things that happened or maybe both? Uh, there were so many steps. I mean, just these series of things going, oh, wait, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I remember as uh, an intern, um, I was a missionary intern going to Africa and I was with the Anglican church and I was preaching and I was looking at the sea of faces and half of them were black men and half of them were black women. And I was preaching and listening to the translator and thinking. And as I'm looking at this sea of faces, I'm thinking, wait, why am I allowed to preach to black men, but I can't preach to white men in the United States? And that was kind of a shocking moment. And then after I went to Bible college, I became a business manager. And um, the business was one run by women. And, um, and we just would not tolerate discrimination in the office and I would walk into church and think, wait a second, why am I so against discrimination in the office, but I'm not in church? Like, it's okay for women to be less than human in the church? Mm -hmm. It just didn't make any sense to me. So it was things like that that would happen over and over again when I would realize, wait a second, why is it that I'm allowing discrimination when I walk into these four walls when this should be a place where I can celebrate my humanity, where I can live into the fullness of my call? I was thinking about that as I read, and I've been reading a lot of books about people who leave their faith in the last year. I've really kind of focused my reading in that area because I'm interested in that journey that people go on and why do some people stay and why do some people leave and I was thinking about that in the context of spiritual wounds and I don't know if you'll have an answer to this question but why do you think so many people do tolerate that I think there there must be some cognitive dissonance on some level for a lot of women 
especially now who work in professional, you know, have are educated, have careers and experiences as a woman outside of the church, but they stay in those kind of more uh, patriarchal systems. Do you have any thoughts on why that happens, why people stay or why people leave, what it takes to leave? It's fascinating, isn't it? I have even in, you know, progressive churches had women say, um, talk about, you know, not wanting too many women uh, leading the worship service because we don't want to scare the men. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting because oftentimes this will even come from women who have fought for uh, the rights of women in college, uh, you know, on college campuses or in business or and, you know, I just think, wow, we've had 2000 years of just looking up at men straight up in the pulpit <laughs> and, and we can't handle um, a couple of years of having some women up there. So it is always fascinating to to have that cognitive dissonance. And I think it's what we're so used to compartmentalizing. Either, you know, our spiritual lives are so important and that connection with God is so important. And that connection oftentimes with our community and our family and generations many times. Um, we have this, this faithful connection to generations and generations of uh, a certain faith tradition. And so we learn to negotiate. I mean, as women, we're always doing this, right? We're mm-hmm. always saying, well, okay, I'm just going to have to put this on the back burner so that I can get this out of it. So I have a friend who talks about it as like eating fried chicken. And I'm a vegetarian, but it's a great, it's a great <laughs> metaphor. And he's like, you know, you just you just eat the fried chicken, spit out the bones, and you just learn to do that. You you learn to get what you can from it, and then spit out the bones. And so each of us is negotiating that in a different way. I know some wonderful, amazing Catholic feminists who are dealing with, um, uh, you know, Roman Catholic Church doesn't allow for the ordination of women as priests. And so, but, you know, they're, they're creating this incredible theology. They're doing this incredible social justice work. They're living in community in amazing ways. They're um, being able to, to live out their art and you know, uh, intelligence and, and unbelievable ways, but they're, they're negotiating, right? It's part Mm -hmm. of what it means to be a woman. We learn to negotiate through these unjust situations, this unjust society, um, in, in pretty uncomfortable ways. But if we can get to the place where we are able to, Kind of open our eyes, see the injustice, and move on to a more healthy and life-giving faith, um, or making sure that we protest within the unjust systems that we're in. I, I think that's incredibly important for us. Mm. I I like that I, that metaphor. First of all, I love I loved in your book the idea of, of choosing a metaphor for yourself. And I've been yeah. thinking a lot about that, but I like that idea of the fried chicken because I part of me thinks at some point some of us choke on a bone, you know. <laughs> like, right. That's it. Yes. No more fried chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's Hugh Hollowell, by the way. Uh, he's he's a great guy. He works with um, people who live outside and um, just all full of fantastic metaphors like that. That's great. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, I wondered to start with, it is, you know, it's called Healing Spiritual Wounds. And I was, I was wondering, what's the difference between a spiritual wound and an emotional wound? 
You know, I went to therapy when my father was dying and I was, um, everything sort of blew up in my life at that moment. And I had suffered a miscarriage. Um, my father was dying and at the same time I was getting criticisms at work and, and not knowing how to navigate a lot of my professional life. Um, and so I went to a therapist, and he was an atheist. And at first I was like, oh, well, this is great. It'll be good to have somebody completely outside of um, my world and be able to, uh, to, to address a lot of things without the lens of religion or spirituality. But then I realized as we were talking and as we were working through some of the issues in my background there were places that we simply could not go to together. Um, there were differences in our thinking. When I would talk about feeling wounded by the church or feeling wounded by God or spirituality, he couldn't understand why I just didn't leave. You know, what's, well, why, why would I go to church? Why would I be part of it? And and I wasn't interested in leaving. I wasn't interested in cutting myself off from uh, God. I was interested in healing that wound. And so definitely, absolutely, emotional wounds and spiritual wounds are often closely related. Um, we tend to deal with our emotional wounds by... Uh, putting a greater theological importance on them. So we we might say, well, God is trying to teach us a lesson or um, I'm, I'm learning, you know, some spiritual thing from this or this is the dark night of the soul or this is, um, you know, we, we, we really bring some spiritual importance onto those difficult things we're going through. Um, but oftentimes, um, uh, there, there is a difference between the emotional wounding and the spiritual wounding because a spiritual wound typically has something to do with a church community, a religious leader. Um, you've been wounded by uh, beliefs that you were taught in the past and so there is this sort of complicity with religion um, within the wounding. <clears throat> that's that's a helpful way to look at it, and it it does. I think they, you know, the spiritual wound can. I agree with you. It can be wrapped up in the emotional wounds, but it's very unique. And I I also find that if you haven't really committed yourself in these kinds of communities, it's very hard to understand the power of the community. Right. Yeah. I have a lot of people who have grown up kind of nominally mainline, um, which is like progressive denominational people. And they, they just kind of read my book and say, what is the big deal? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I understand it all, <laughs> but, but folks who, um, you know, they have maybe, uh, grown up in a Roman Catholic church where a priest has um, been a pedophile or um, even a lot of soldiers who have gone overseas thinking that they were serving God and country and they have those things really wound up tightly in their heads or um, people who have grown up in conservative Christian um backgrounds, you know, they really have suffered some difficult wounds. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the whole idea or fear that I often hear when I'm talking to people as they're exploring some of their, their beliefs and thinking around their faith, especially if they're from a more conservative tradition, this fear of being a heretic or an apostate or or something along those lines if they go too far in like deconstructing what they believe. I, have you encountered much of that thinking in your work? Oh, absolutely. And it's so scary. 
You know, when I was being taught um, even things about the Bible, so there are there are all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. I mean, the Old Testament was written without vowels, right? right. <laughs> and we're trying to figure out what it says two thousand years later in a completely different. Um, or more than 2,000 years later, but, you know, in this utterly and completely different context. And, you know, we're looking at this this text that was written without vowels that has been um, rewritten thousands of times. There have, there have been changes made by, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of scribes. And, and so, so when I was growing up, I was told that this book was completely without error. There, mm-hmm. there were no mistakes in it. And not only that, but if you, if you find a mistake and you question it, um, then the whole thing falls apart. Right. right. Yes. you have this like Hebrew Bible that we've taken from a different religion that didn't have any vowels in it in a completely you know nomadic uh, background and we are taking that making sense out of it in some way and yet you know we we think that if there are any mistakes in it the whole thing is going to fall apart well, of course, the whole thing is riddled with, you know, human foibles and mistakes and mistranslations. And, you know, think about every word you're trying to figure out whether to translate it, dig, dog, dug, you know. It's, right. It's, it's just, um, you know, it's it's spirit, it's art, it's poetry, it's not... Uh, science and hard and um, as we've we've tried to understand it so we are in the midst of this and we've been taught that if you question one part of your faith it will all fall apart but of course faith is not a house of cards. You know, Mm -hmm. if you blow on it, it's not going to go away. I mean, this is an incredibly resilient faith and, um, and we can blow on it and we can struggle with it and we can think and question. Um, but that's really, really scary. And another thing that happens, um, when you've grown up in these conservative environments is you've been taught that um, you should shun even close family members if they walk away from the faith. And so for me, it was not only about losing faith, but it was about abandonment from God and family. Mm -hmm. And so it was this very scary idea that I was going to be orphaned alone without to take care of me without ever being able to go to a Thanksgiving meal, without ever being able to celebrate Christmas with um, extended family, without my children knowing their grandparents. And, and all of that is incredibly painful and scary. Mm-hmm. And so there are reasons people are terrified and um, and so that's why a lot of people keep going to uh, the church that may be profoundly against women's humanity, full humanity, but but they just kind of deal with it because um, because they don't want to be cut off from their relationships, from their family, um, and from their community. The reason, the way that... I have been able to um, kind of move forward is being able to, I, I, I learned this trick from Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. He's a Buddhist monk and um, he talks about like meditating and you can meditate on um, thinking about yourself 
as younger. And oftentimes I think of myself as this very conservative, very intolerant, um, younger self. And, you know, with all of those religious beliefs, with all of that religious background. And then I just hold myself and I listen to myself talk about what those religious beliefs brought me, you know, why I believed them, why I, I stuck with them. Um, and I listened to myself and my fears and my worry and concern. And then I just try to have compassion on who I was. And through doing that, um, it really helps me to have compassion on my family and have compassion on um, uh, on who I was as you know my younger me, mm-hmm. as well as the community that I grew up with. And for some reason, understanding that I have compassion on myself helps me to tap into that compassion of God. And that love that never ends, that's surrounding me and embracing me. And through those meditations, I've been able to um, to really have some healing with my younger self. And it's helped me to stay connected with my family, even when um, they've tried to move away from me or I've tried to move away from them. I think that's beautiful and I think it's so helpful because part of our journey I think is to reconcile some of our past more dogmatic or um, intolerant beliefs are within ourselves when we start to move away from those those backgrounds and those beliefs and it can be um, hurtful I don't know if that's the right word but there's a lot of shame around how I used to believe and how I used to think within me, or there was before I went through a little bit of a healing journey myself and forgave yeah. myself. So I think that's it, you know, because you realize at some point you were complicit in the system. And so you need to do some work around that. And I love that idea of doing that meditation and and holding yourself. I think that's a, a great, very uh, loving way to process some of those things. I was thinking as you were talking about that, about this um, idea of loving ourselves and and um, holding ourselves. And uh, I used to play a game with some of my friends who have come out of the same background as I was in, and we call it crazy shit we once believed. And it's not as nurturing as what you're suggesting. But we said, <laughs> we said, you got to name it before you can heal from it. <laughs> but we've sat around and talked about like breaking records or, you know, clearing out things or just some of the stuff that we, we um, even parenting methods that we thought were going to be helpful and I think you're right. You have to name it, and uh, your way is probably a little more loving. But ours, we certainly laugh a lot when we when we've gone through an evening of talking about some of those things and realizing as well. I think that there's movement in our life, right? That we've we've changed. Absolutely, and laughter is huge in all of this. I I had a lot of funny parts in my book, and and. Um, it, they ended up on the editor's floor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they weren't as funny as I thought they were, but you know. So I think one of the surprising parts of your book for me, I, you know, I was kind of rolling through it and really tracking with it until I got to the chapter on, um, money and financial wounding and healing. And I had never thought about that. But I've been talking to people about it since I read it and realized how how much that was a part of my my journey. I just never saw it as a spiritual wound 
until I saw that in your book. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that. Maybe you could just explain a little bit uh, your thinking in putting that chapter because we you know you talk about your body you talk about you know healing from theological differences that you may have had and then um and then money came up and i thought wow that's a different area that i hadn't really explored yeah you know and this is a very kind of u.s centric um uh history that that i'm exploring here so uh, please forgive me for that um, but certainly in the United States, sort of at the turn of this century, last century, there were these two competing ideas around money. There was the, um, the idea of the social gospel. And so this was um, promoted a lot by Paul Rausch and, I'm sorry, Walter Rausch and Bush. Um, and, and, this was the idea that, and he was working in Hell's Kitchen in New York City in this extremely um, poor neighborhood, and he was working with um, just, you know, children who were laboring in factories, and he was getting sick and tired of praying over tiny coffins. And so he wrote about the social gospel, and um, kind of tied the world as it ought to be with the kingdom of God and really set out this vision of us taking care of one another. And then there was this other idea, and it came a lot from, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking McCormick, who was uh, an incredible businessman who um, whose family and, uh, you know, gave a lot of money to different institutions. And at one point, um, their family really supported D.L. Moody. And Moody was uh, a guy who kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He was a great evangelist. And he would um, preach often at segregated revivals. And he would have, um, which he you know, renounced towards the end of his uh, of his career, but but certainly segregated revivals at the time, and um, and he would he was part of the like YMCA movement, and he would have people go through his um, th- go through his Sunday school. And basically, he was taking, you know, these kids who were running around the streets of Chicago, these young boys, and making them into decent businessmen. And he would have before and after pictures of, you know, children scrubbed up and and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And he would have these revivals with, um, and he was always flanked by these businessmen who who were supporting him. And so we have these like two major visions going on in the United States. And one was saying, okay, let's list, let's think about the kingdom of God in the sense of um, in the sense of this system that we're living in. And the other one was saying, you need to take responsibility for your actions. And it was happening economically, and it was also happening theologically. So if you think of evangelicalism, oftentimes the evangelical will think of the individual's responsibility. So if you're having difficulties economically, it's your responsibility. If you're having uh, difficulties in your faith, or if you'd like salvation, then that's an individual choice. And so when we think about um, the social gospel, it's more about the community of faith that's upholding you, the community that's surrounding you. It's about the, um, the systems of, you know, the economy um, 
you know, in, in Chicago, you could be born in Cabrini Green and the projects, or you could be born two blocks down on the Gold Coast, and your life would be absolutely, utterly, completely different, not based on, you know, just based on basically the color of your skin or the opportunities and connections that you have. Um, so, so these two things were, I, in my mind, definitely very much connected. Our individual salvation and individual responsibility to get out of debt or whether this is a system of um, community responsibility, a system of faith. Um, and, and so oftentimes when we have grown up in this particular climate, um, and again, a lot of this analysis is based on the U.S., but what's happening in our country is we have um, greater and greater student loan debt, greater and greater medical debts, greater and greater uh, housing issues, um, housing prices have gone up, and yet our salaries have remained stagnant. And so we have this whole generation of people who have been taught that that's your individual responsibility, and yet all of society is constructed so that they will either be in debt or be wealthy enough to not have to go get you know, be in debt. Mm -hmm. But, but basically you have a system that's broken with individual actors thinking it's their, their own fault. And there's incredible theological shame that goes with it because we have this idea that God blesses the individual if the individual is faithful, or we have this idea that um, the person is sinning if they are in debt. And this totally goes against the whole biblical story, because the whole biblical story of the Old Testament, you know, the people of Israel were, were debtors, mm -hmm. and they were in debt to the Pharaoh, and that is where their oppression, they were enslaved people who were in debt to the Pharaoh, and they left for their liberation. And yet somehow, when we read those um, stories and when we read that, that biblical narrative, we have twisted it somehow. I mean, all throughout history, we knew that the people who were holding the debt slaves were the ones that were in the wrong. Mm -hmm. But somehow, now we think that the debt slaves are wrong. And it's, it's a huge shift that needs to happen in our um, economic thinking and our political thinking and, our, um, and also our theological thinking. Mm -hmm. So how do, like, how do you think people experience that, that in their life, like in their wounding, that, that theology or that system? Yeah, I think that as I've talked to more and more people, um, we just have this shame around debt. And, um, you know, Brene Brown, if, if mm -hmm. you've yes. um, studied her work, she's really brought to light this idea of guilt versus shame. And um, guilt is something that's important to have because you're, you're, you know, you know you've done something wrong. You feel guilt about it, and you know that you can change those actions or behaviors. But shame is something that makes you feel bad about who you are, who you are bodily. And I believe that religion has perpetuated this shame around debt. And so when we feel shameful. We end up hiding. Um, we end up hiding the truth about where we are. And so, of course, nobody sits around, or it's very rare if you sit around and talk about how much credit card debt you have or how much, um, 
you know, debt you have with your cars or whatever mm-hmm. and, and with your friends because it's just embarrassing, right? Right. I mean, you know, even like going to a financial advisor is really hard because, you know, you, you know that you're in debt and it's really, really embarrassing. And, and everything that you read says debt is bad and debt is wrong. And yet the whole system is created so that you go into debt. And so we hide those things and then we don't talk about them. And then if we have to go into bankruptcy, then we definitely hide it and we don't talk about it. And it, it, and then that per, perpetuates this system where no one is able to say, Hey, listen, this is a problem in our, in our society. This is wrong. This needs to change. Um, because, you know, nobody's talking about it. Mm -hmm. We've all been told that we are bad people if we are in debt. I actually think you could expand that chapter into a whole other book. I think you could just keep building on that. I don't know, kind of conflicting messages. I find that, you know, we like to see property values go up and we want to be part of the system. Mm -hmm. And even though that includes bigger mortgages and all of those things for people that um, create this burden of debt. And Mm -hmm. I I was thinking about how it gets harder as you go through your life. It's, you know, and now we have an aging population with many people on the verge of retirement or in retirement who are going into retirement with unprecedented levels of debt. And, I imagine shame and great mm-hmm. anxiety around that. So, right, a lot of us are sandwiched too, right? That our parents can't afford long-term care, um, and then we're trying to, uh, you know, make sure our our children, our our sons and daughters, aren't going into tremendous student loan debt. So, so there's this sort of generational stuff that we're taking on as well. And, um, or if we're single, uh, there's all these other issues because our households are structured for two income families now. And so single people aren't able to, um, they're not able to settle down. I'm putting, I'm using air quotes right now, settle down (laughs) in the ways that people have in the past. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we just have all kinds of like ridiculous analyses of of that, um, and and I'm I'm just thinking of like people saying that single people are extending their adolescence, or um, there's more people who are not having children because mm-hmm. they can't afford it, and um, or never so leaving a, home, living at home for much longer. Yeah, with their parents. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So there's all these issues that are are happening and um and I think a lot of we don't see that money is the root of all this evil because um because we can't talk about it. So we've got this shame around it. Yeah. So, you know, if we have debt then maybe God's not blessing us. Right. So I, I thought that was just a, a wounding that maybe people don't even necessarily think about in in their lives or haven't brought out into the open to address as um, an area where they may need to find some healing and um, reconcile some of those messages that maybe they haven't explored in their lives. Right. So... You, I know you um, work in, I think you've written a book around ministering to a new generation. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. I, I just wondered what differences you see sort of across generations when it comes to spiritual wounding. Well, I think uh, younger generations right now are um, going through, and, and you know, I've got to say, I wrote this book when I was younger. And so, and at the time I was all fired up and angry because I was like, 
why do I keep reading these boomers talking about Generation X and what we think and what we believe? And, and so I don't want to um, pretend like I'm an expert on millennials when I don't, when I'm not a millennial. <laughs> but, but we do just, you know, as I work with people, we do see these um, amazing people who are uh, really, really frustrated and disheartened by, um, uh, you know, in the United States, 80% of white evangelicals are supporting Trump. Mm -hmm. And it's been incredibly difficult to watch as um, immigrant families are being ripped apart and um, people who are looking for sanctuary and, and looking for a better life and um, they're being taken, their children are being taken away from them. And then they don't know even how to put these families back together. They haven't kept track of, of the parents and they haven't tra- kept track of the children. And, um, and so it's just unbelievably painful to watch all of this. Um, in the United States going on and to realize that the reason why, you know, as this is happening, you still have this incredible support for Trump um, by white evangelicals. And so there's a younger generation coming up just saying this makes no sense at all. You know, um, how can we say that we're doing this because of our Christian faith. Um, so there's a lot of things that are brewing. There are people who are um, younger and, and going into the workforce and finding out a lot of the things that we're talking about economically. They're not able to uh, to thrive in the same way that their parents or grandparents did. And yet they're around this rhetoric constantly that they need to um, uh, be responsible for for their well-being, their economic well-being. And so we have um, people who are very disillusioned. And there's been a lot of um, difficulties in the church that have come up in different religious um, groups. You know, there has have been the pedophilia cases in the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and then we've tried to cover them up, which is even, can be even more difficult and more damaging. Um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have often been framed as religious and holy wars, and so we have a generation of soldiers and soldier families who have been extremely disillusioned by, um, you know, thinking that they are fighting this holy war and they realize that religion has just been used as a manipulation tactic in all of this. And so and then, then, of course, there's um, homophobia and sexism that has been sanctioned by religion. And so people are, are very frustrated. You know, they're very angry. And um, and so a lot of people are leaving churches. Um, uh, they don't have that sense of social connection to the church. Um, maybe their parents didn't go to church or they weren't raised in the church in the same way as, as earlier generations. Mm-hmm. But the good thing that's coming out of all this, I believe, is that, you know, when somebody in a younger generation goes to church, it's not because they feel like it's socially acceptable or because their parents are there or their grandparents are there or whatever. It's usually because they really care about having a spiritual life. And so people are going to church for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And Often they're recreating church in a different way. You know, there's churches that are much more um, connected to the ground, to feeding people, to gardens, to taking care of nature, taking care of the earth, 
there's a lot more attention that's being put into people's spiritual lives and, um, and whether people are spiritually healthy, what they need um, as, you know, to grow into healthy, whole spiritual beings. And so there is, you know, there's incredible movement with gay and lesbian, transgender, queer Christians. My friend Mihi Court, Kim Court just wrote this, um, this great book about coloring outside the lines and, you know, how queerness can, can really change your faith. So there's this incredible um, uh, body of, of literature that's coming out with people who are really rethinking faith in light of their sexuality there's, there are people who are um, really thinking about women's bodies and um, consent and health and wholeness and fertility and infertility when it comes to women um, and theology. And there are people who are thinking profoundly about economics. You know, there are people like William Barber and um, and the Poor People's Campaign that's been revitalized in this in this time. So there are these incredible movements that are also happening at the same time as um, the institutional failings are occurring. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in a decade or two. Um, because it, it's just sort of a terrifying time. If mm-hmm. you talk to anybody who who works in religious environments, there's this huge shifting that's occurring. I think you, I, I really love how you just summarize so many things there. And, uh, you know, I was wondering, and I think you probably just answered this question, is what advice you would give to someone who's just really starting to, um, see things with a different eye. You know, they've maybe been they've been in those systems all their lives, and they're now no longer want to eat the fried chicken. And <laughs> <laughs> what? How do you how do you um, direct or uh, counsel someone who's in that? very uh, unsettling, and it can be just a very um, traumatizing place. Yeah. Um, you know, so much of my work is just really, really basic in the sense of we're just going back to that loving God, loving your neighbor, loving yourself. And so much of my book and much of the work that I do around it has to do with, um, as your podcast is titled, Reframing. So thinking about who God is and, um, you know, using the idea of God as love as your litmus test. And I'm not talking about like James Dobson's tough love and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, like love. <laughs> and, um, and this idea of, uh, you know, if this is not a loving God, then we have to rethink about, rethink God and reframe God. And you don't have to come up with, you know, an idea of God you just made up by yourself. There are long and beautiful religious traditions um, that are centered around a loving God. So imagine, you know, every time you imagine guilt because um, you're afraid that God hasn't blessed you because of your credit card or you have guilt because of, you know, some sexual act you may have participated in before you were married or you have guilt because of um, even just being a woman Um and not acting correctly, or and you feel as if God's going to punish you, um, just ask yourself, you know, is this loving God? And if it's not, just realize that's not God. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so healing your, your connection with God, and sometimes that's done in community through songs and... Um, 
sometimes people aren't able to find a community that they that they can connect with. Um, so many times people have found community online, um, but being able to really think about God in a more healthy way. And sometimes, you know, as women, uh, we were often taught that theology was kind of men's work. And it wasn't, you know, sometimes it wasn't even implicit or explicitly taught. Sometimes it was implicitly taught. Um, but we can, you know, uh, Mary was the mother of God. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, Jesus came from a woman, <laughs> like, you know, she gave birth to the word. And so we absolutely um, can be empowered to, to imagine God and must imagine God at this time in a new way. Um, and so we think about God, we think about ourselves and many of us t- were taught to hate ourselves. We were taught like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we have this idea of our desires and our bodies as sinful. And um, and so if we can imagine this loving God who loves us completely and realize that we were created in the image of God, men, women, straight. Um, There is, in Jesus Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. I mean, all the barriers are gone, right? Mm -hmm. We are absolutely made in the image of God and loved by God. So if we can begin to understand our flesh and our bodies and our beings as loved and beloved by God um, uh, and and learn to love ourselves. That's incredibly important. And then just loving our neighbor. So understanding um, our political situations, understanding our economic situations, understanding, uh, you know, our policies in this light of loving our neighbor and knowing that not only are we loved by God, but that other person is loved by God as well, um, can really change our whole system of thinking. So even though it's incredibly scary, and even though you you are overtaken by fears of being cut off by your family or fears of um, being rejected by God, we just have to keep working on a, on a more life-giving faith. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there, there have been theologians throughout history who have believed these things. What's important is that regular people believe them, (laughs) (laughs) that that each one of us, it gets in our bones and that we begin acting and, um, and creating in ways that, that are more life giving, um, because the world can change. Uh, we can start living the world as it ought to be if this gets in our bones. Mm hmm. Well, I want to thank you for being here today and for the wisdom that you've shared here and in your book. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's your favorite place to connect with people? Um, I'm always like mouthing off on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So that's at Carol Howard. Um, Facebook, I'm, I'm, you know, getting a little frustrated with Facebook, right? With all the, I mean, not that Twitter is any that much greater, but uh, yeah, I, I seem to connect with people um, a little bit better on Twitter. It's just what I enjoy. I'm on Instagram as well, Carol Howard, um, but yeah, Twitter's my my place. Um, I have a blog that I've been neglecting terribly, but um, it's because I'm I'm working on a new project. So can't say too much about the new project. Oh, okay. But <laughs> if you can uh, just keep watching on Twitter, and I'll I'll let you know where I'll be in the future. 
That's great. And I, I will put uh, links to everything in my um, show notes and on my uh, social media as well. I wanted to just close with a blessing for you. I really like the um, John O'Donohue's book, To Bless the Space Between Us. And mm -hmm. so let me just um, bless you. And it's great that you mentioned a new project because um, the one that I picked was for work. So Carol, may the sacredness of your work bring light and renewal to those who work with you and to those who see and receive your work. May your work never exhaust you. May it release wellsprings of refreshment, inspiration, and excitement. May you never become lost in bland absences. May the day never burden. May dawn find hope in your heart, approaching your new day with dreams, possibilities, and promises. May evening find you gracious and fulfilled, May you go into the night blessed, sheltered, and protected. May your soul calm, console, and renew you. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you. And I uh, look forward to getting this up and sharing this with my, with my listeners. Great. Thanks. Thanks.